0: Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network.
2: Slater Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. Merry Christmas. I believe it, it's uh, less than a week. Good night. Uh, the mom is in town, got in a couple days ago, and her and the wife are off shopping, which I joined them in the beginning of their adventure, so thank you for letting me be here. For the next three hours. So I don't have to be there for the next three hours. So I could jump on the tail end of the shopping adventure and then we can finally call it a day and watch the Cowboys game. Cowboys are playing today, right? Did I, did I hear that? Okay, good. Saturday Cowboy. There you go. That's real nice. I like that a lot. Um, lo- we got a lot to do today. I want to talk about Ted Cruz's campaign. Um, did you read the Washington, I think, post article about the data points? So the Ted Cruz campaign has up to 50,000 data points. On potential voters, which they use for when they knock on your door, they know not only what to talk to you about, like what the most important issue probably is to you, but how to talk to you about it. And it's so fascinating. And he's he's put together a team of behavioral psychologists, which is exactly what President Obama did or Senator Obama did in two thousand seven with the behavioral psychologist dream team. Six of the best behavioral psychologists in the country put them together and did little things that. Changed people's behavior, um, tiny things that when you hear them, you say, "No, that can't make a difference," but it does. It did, and I think what Ted Cruz is doing is going to make a huge difference as well. So we're talking about that. Also, um, the greatest fighter pilot in American history. His name's John Boyd. Um, he came up with a talking about all the things he he came up with, but um, I want to compare Donald Trump's campaign. To the principles that were developed or not developed, I should say, uh, articulated by the greatest fighter pilot ever. Because Trump's using them, knowingly or not, I'm not sure, uh, but he's using them. And as long as he continues to use them, he will win. If he continues to, and I'll give away a little bit here, if he continues to be the person who sets reality as opposed to a person who reacts to reality then he will do that all the way to the end and, and win the whole darn thing. So we got that as well. But first, I want to start off talking about uh, global warming, sort of. Uh, the Paris Treaty, a couple days ago, signed or whatever. Um, also here in San Diego, our city council unanimously, even though we have it's a nine-person council, four of them are conservatives, unanimously signed uh, an agreement that by 2035, 100% of San Diego's energy is going to come from renewable sources, which is outrageous. And impossible. But. This stuff is getting. Uh, more and more. How do I put that? More and more real. I guess like it gets, it's starting. To, now what came out of Paris. There's nothing binding in it. Uh, but that's just another step. Towards what ultimately will be. Legally binding. So I want to talk a little bit about. Fossil fuels here. And why fossil fuels. Are so important. And And my argument isn't. You know, everyone, everyone on the left to global warming people, they say, we've got to stop using fossil fuels. we got to use renewables. And I say, no, no, no. We need to be using more fossil fuels. Because everything we have today, everything that is good is because of fossil fuels. So why would we not continue to use cheap, reliable energy as opposed to expensive, unreliable energy? And no one can answer that properly. And once people get the proper perspective on what fossil fuels have done for us, then I think they're a little less likely to uh, to attack them. Let me back it up here a second. So I read an article the other day about nanotechnology. Are you familiar with nanotechnology? So it's uh, it's really, really small stuff. So a nanometer is a billionth of a meter and you're thinking oh that's pretty small um no 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 uh (laughs) it's it's very small so uh, a little perspective a millimeter right you see a millimeter will be like a notch on a pencil like the smallest notch uh that's the diameter of a piece of lead in a pencil that's a millimeter um we're talking nanometers so imagine a human hair One nanometer is to the diameter of your hair as one inch is to a mile. Okay, so imagine a mile. Okay, an inch, like an inch, an inch to a mile. So one inch, one mile. That difference is the same as one nanometer and the diameter of your hair. That's how big a nanometer is. Look, one more analogy. This is the one that that really blows my mind. The difference between a nanometer and a meter, so a meter is three feet, three point something feet. So a nanometer and a meter is the difference between a marble and the size of the earth. Are you mind blown? Yeah, right. A a meter, a nanometer to a meter is a marble to the earth. That's what we're talking about here. That's a tiny, so a red blood cell is 8,000 nanometers long. You get the idea. So scientists at Rice are working on nanotechnology, uh, uh, research colleges all across the, the country are working on nanotechnology, and they've come up with a, a new nanoparticle structure. Now, I'm going to explain this in 30 seconds because the details don't really matter, and I'm butchering this, but platinum is a good catalyst. Right, which is a substance that speeds up a chemical reaction. So plat- uh, platinum is a good catalyst. Gold is a good plasmonic metal, and for the sake of conversation, that's a, something that reflects light. That's not exactly right, but we'll go with it. So the problem is platinum isn't a good plasmonic metal, and gold isn't a good catalyst. They each have their strengths and weaknesses. So these scientists created a nanoparticle where the core of it is made of gold, and it has eight prongs, sort of like a, you know, you remember play jacks. You ever played Jax before? So it's got like prongs, eight prongs. And the prongs are made of platinum. And they've created this new nanoparticle that has the best properties of each. In one nanoparticle. And how tiny are they again? 8,000 of them is one red blood cell. <laughs> how are, what? How is that possible? How are these scientists able to do that? All right, Slater, what does that have to do with global warming? Like, I hope that blows your mind, right? Does that properly blow your mind about how, I, I, can't, I can't fathom such a thing. How are they able to make a new, well, I have trouble putting together Ikea furniture and these people are putting, like, making new nano part, What? I read that story and I thought about all the goofiness coming out of Paris these last couple of weeks because their way of thinking is that we need less, less production. Less development, lower standards of living so that we emit less CO2 into the atmosphere, thinking that we can dial in the temperature of the planet to our exact liking. Now, not only is that absurdly arrogant, but it's the absolute wrong approach. The goal should be not less but more. The goal should be to advance, to keep going, to produce more, to create new technologies. Technologies that can reduce pollution from burning coal and oil and natural gas. Technologies that can improve nuclear and hydro. Ways we can be more efficient at producing energy uh, by burning fossil fuels in different ways. Now, we have no idea yet how nanotechnology can work with energy sector. We don't know yet. It's very in the infancy. But if we produce less, if we shut down, if we slow down, if we cave to this, for whatever reason, overwhelming desire to go backwards in the name of the planet, then it's going to take a longer time to come up with the breakthroughs that will revolutionize our lives and clean the environment in the process. Slater, I don't quite get it. I don't quite get what you're saying. All right, let me try this. The polio vaccine. Let's talk about the polio vaccine for a second. So Jonas Salk, he invented the vaccine in 1954 five or seven I forget we'll go with 1955 he did his post-grad research at Michigan before that he did medical school at NYU before that he went to college at the City College of New York before that he went to probably the best private school in New York City Townsend Harris High School at that time And I think they've only been around for like 40 years at that time. They had three Nobel Prize graduates, six Pulitzer Prize graduates, and a Supreme Court justice graduate. Okay, So it was the best high school in New York City. He was born in New York City. His parents were immigrants from Poland. His parents got here around 1900. When his dad got to New York City, he worked in the garment industry and became a tailor. He was Jewish, became a tailor. Now at that time in New York City, 1900, more people worked and making clothes than any other industry in the city and more clothes were made in New York City than anywhere else in the world. And it was almost entirely Jewish people. So when the Salks came to America, they got hooked up in this culture making clothes. And it's actually a really fascinating story about how Jewish people got in the garment business, but we're running out of time. So my point of the story is, Because Salk's parents came to America with a new marketable skill, tailoring. They were able to make enough money to send their kid to the best private school, which got him guaranteed admission into the best college, which got him into the best medical school, which got him into the best post-grad school, which ultimately led to him inventing the polio vaccine. What if, and I posit this to you, what if, There was never an industrial revolution in America. Now, follow me here, environmentalists. Follow me. What if there was never an industrial revolution in America? An industrial revolution, which was only created because of fossil fuels, right? What if a steam engine was never invented? What if the combustible engine or whatever? What What if no human ever found a purpose for coal or oil? Or worse, yeah, what if politicians banned it because it was too dirty? And at the time, coal and oil were very, very dirty. Worse than China today. If there was no industrial revolution in America, fossil fuels, then there would be no electricity. Then there would be no mass-produced farming to make cotton with the tractors and all the rest. There would be no fertilizers. There would be no ability to have factories to mass-produce these clothes. And if that was the case, then there would be no way for Jonas Salk's parents to make enough money to send their kid to a nice school, which ultimately would get him into the best college and into the best grad school and into the best med school and ultimately invent the polio vaccine. If the industrial revolution didn't happen in the 1850s, then Jonas Salk never would have invented the polio vaccine in the 1950s. And there'd still be thousands and thousands of kids every year in iron lungs. And it's like, what are you talking about if there was no industrial revolution? This one. If there was no industrial revolution, then Jonas Salk's parents would have come from Poland like farmers like they were and continued to be farmers. And we'd still be farmers, hopefully growing enough food that we can last through the winter. And here's the thing that always tricks me out. If this didn't happen. If there was no industrial revolution, if Jonas Salk didn't invent the polio vaccine, then there would be not a single person today who would say, gosh, you know, if only we burned more fossil fuels. Then a guy named Jonas Salk would have created a vaccine for polio so that my kid wouldn't have to live the rest of his life in an iron lung. No one would say that because the progress we take for granted today never would have happened and we wouldn't even know it. I hope that story makes sense. And I share that because the same thing's happening today. Every time, and this is why watching this uh, this Paris conference and all these people backslap and celebrate, it makes me sick because every time we produce less, we advance less. And our economy slows down and we alter our future. Right now it's 2015. Who knows the progress that could be made by 2115? Probably even more progress than the difference between 1850 and 1950. But the decisions we make today can either enable a future or prevent that future from happening. And to bring it back around to nanotechnology, this is a mind-blowing future technology that's right in its infancy. And it can change the world in profound ways. We need more of it. We need more advancements. We need more scientists coming up with ways to improve our lives. Not politicians coming up with ways to limit our growth. And what frustrates me so much, and I know we're going to take a break here, what frustrates me so much is is that the left takes the mantle for being the, the people of progress. When their entire economic plan, if it was instituted 100 years ago, we wouldn't have anything that we have today. Anything. Modern medicine, modern pharma, anything today. And they want to do those same policies today. Build less, create less, invent less, produce less. And make us poorer tomorrow. one eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. Polio vaccine thank fossil fuels. Mike Slater show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word.
3: Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network.
1: This podcast brought to you by My Patriot Supply.
2: CNN wrote a headline the other day. It said, this is the end of fossil fuels. (laughs) Like why? why? First of all, it's not. I'll explain why in a second. But why? Why is that even a good thing? That's my that's my biggest point. Why is that even an admirable goal? The ending fossil fuels? No one can answer that properly. First of all, it's not the end of fossil fuels. What percentage of of energy in America do you think comes from fossil fuels? No one has any idea. Um, So ask this to people. Um, so 86.4% of our energy comes from fossil fuels, uh, but you add another four and a half percent for nuclear and then 6% for hydro. So I guess a better question is what percentage of our energy comes from wind and solar? Because when people talk about renewable energies, that's what they're really talking about, wind and solar. Uh, and that's 2.4%. So 97.6% of our energy comes from fossil fuels. And again, I'm throwing in hydro and nuclear in there too, but, um, 97.6%. And we want to end that. <laughs> Why? Why do you want to do that? Now, I'm not talking about. You may have a solar panel on your roof. That's fine if that's what you want. That's what I'm talking. About. I'm talking about solar panels powering entire cities. That will never happen. Solar panels lifting the third world into the first world. That will never happen. Solar panels fueling cars and trucks and planes and ships. That will never. Happen. Tell a quick story. Think of a slum in uh, Africa or India or China, or where a majority of the, the the world population lives. There's a health clinic in that, or just outside the slum in the town, and a pregnant mother comes into that clinic. Now it took her forever to get there because it's hard to come across in a car. In these areas, and even if you do have access to a car, gas is more expensive there than anywhere here in America, that's for sure. But let's say this mother does somehow make it to the clinic. And she gets there, and the mom gives birth prematurely. The baby's three and a half pounds. Now, in America, no problem. The baby goes in an incubator. But at this clinic, they don't have one. Well, they do, so they do have one. They just can't turn it on. Now, at the same time, the mom is now getting an infection and it's spreading. And they can't treat it because they don't have the right medicine. Well, they do have the right medicine. It's just that they, they don't have a refrigerator to keep it properly at the, at the proper temperature. And to be honest, they do have a refrigerator. It's just that they can't turn it on. So both mom and baby die. And there's nothing that the doctor and the nurse can do about it. And they die not because the technology doesn't exist that could save their lives. And by the way, it's never existed in human history. Only now they have the technology. They just can't use it because Western world leaders deny the third world fossil fuels. We deny them oil and natural gas and coal. In other words, cheap, reliable energy. We deny them that. And instead we leave them with a solar panel which is unreliable. There's an activist from Kenya. He says, the rich countries can afford to engage in some luxurious experimentation with other forms of energy. But for us, we're still at the stage of survival. I don't see how a solar panel is going to power a steel industry or a railway network. It might maybe power a small transistor radio. I'll tell you what these Western leaders did. I think it's, I think it's sick. I think it's tragic. It's shameful. Fossil fuels save lives. And we just denied these fossil fuels to the rest of the world. And we're supposed to celebrate it and pat each other on the back. I refuse to do that.
0: Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the blaze radio network.
3: Mike
2: Slater. Slater. Got a lot more I got to get off my chest, if that's okay. <laughs> um, just because I don't hear any of this anywhere and I get super frustrated about it. So I told that story about a doctor and a health clinic in, in uh, anywhere in the third world, which is most of the world. And they have the equipment, they have the medicine, they just don't have the electricity, they don't have the energy to turn the equipment on or to keep the, uh, the, t- the uh, medicine at the right temperature or whatever. And then these Western world leaders pat themselves on the back because we continue to deny cheap, reliable energy to the third world, which is what we have that has made us so prosperous. You know, Reliable energy, I want to focus just on the word reliable. Reliable energy is not something that we think about because it's always there. Every time you walk into a room, you flip the light switch and you know that the light's going to turn on. You turn the TV on, you know it's going to turn on. You open up your fridge, you're not like, oh, gosh, I hope the fridge stayed on all week. I mean, like the, we have reliable energy 24-7. Why is it always there? Because we get 97.6% of our electricity from reliable sources. Nuclear, hydro, natural gas, oil, coal. The developing world needs this reliable and cheap energy, and we deny them this most precious resource. The same thing that lifted us up from their exact standard of living that that they that they have, we had, now we don't, and we keep them there and then we celebrate it. It's sick. That's why I was in um I was in the Philadelphia airport when I when I saw the news of uh, the Sign Treaty or whatever they go. I, I got sick to my stomach. Do you know, according to the World Health Organization, there are three point four million people a year? Die from waterborne diseases. 3.4 million a year. Why? Because they don't have water treatment plants and they don't have proper sewage systems. And they could have them, but we don't let them because those things require reliable fossil fuels to power. And we deny the third world these fossil fuels and people die from waterborne diseases. And then we celebrate it because we're not letting them have any of it. And you say, oh, but the planet slated the planet. We can't hurt the planet. You know those climate change models? Do you believe them? Why? Why should you? Why should anyone? Ask that. I know you don't. Ask that or you probably don't, but ask someone who believes in them why they believe in them. I have an easy reason not to. Because the same people who made models in the 70s and 80s and 90s predicting what the temperature would be today couldn't have been more wrong. And they're the same people who are making models today about what's going to happen in 10, 20, 100 years now. They've kind of learned their lesson. They've they've changed the uh, prediction scale, right? So it's no longer, well, in 10 years, this is going to happen. It's now, well, in 100 years, right? Because they can't be proven wrong as easily now. Right, the same people who predicted in 1980 that today the sea levels would be drowning us all. Well, we're, we're not. Do you know we use twice as much fossil fuel today as we did in 1980? Twice as much. And none of those things have happened. The superstorms, the famines, the diseases that we were told about. We grow more food than, than ever before. There's fewer climate deaths than ever before. We're better able to withstand climate changes than ever before. Last point here. But does that make sense? That point? Like, don't, there's no reason to believe those same people. They're the same people. One last story, um, or one last uh, breaking of a preconception. Um, People who are for uh, uh, renewable energy, which you should now call unreliable energy. Um, They're for it because they think fossil fuels are bad for the planet, which isn't true. But they think that because the initial preconception is that nature is pristine. Nature is perfect. And anything that has any effect on nature at all is inherently bad. Anything that has any effect on nature at all is automatically bad. And we have to break that preconception because nature is horrible. <laughs> now you say, wait, hold on, Slater. I... I I'm going to Yosemite next week. You tell me nature's horrible. I'm going to go to this, uh, you know, national park here. Nature's beautiful. Hmm. Nature can only be beautiful. Nature. Let me put it like this. Nature can only be enjoyed because of fossil fuels. What's the movie coming out guys, uh, with Leonardo DiCaprio in a couple weeks, the revenant (sighs) can't wait for the revenant. Why is it coming out January 7th? That's an awkward date to come out. Isn't it? um, but the Revenant. I know almost nothing about it because it looks so awesome. I don't. I don't want to know anything more about it. But I believe it's about fur trappers in like the 1800s. Is that right? Do you guys know if that's vaguely sort of it? Yeah. Um, watch that movie. I haven't seen it yet, obviously, but watch it. They're going to be out in the wilderness. They're going to be in places where uh, today you might go visit a lodge, a bed and breakfast. In the middle of the woods, middle of the forest, the mountains, the snow—oh, it's beautiful. Watch that movie. See if any of them uh, appreciate nature. Good. I I see if there's any time in the entire two-hour movie when they when they're sitting on their uh, in the freezing cold with no uh, Gore-Tex sleeping bags, fossil fuels with no tents. Fossil fuels with no, no food and see if they're enjoying nature. Fossil fuels make it so that we can enjoy the beauty of nature. Otherwise, nature wants to kill you. Today, camping is fun. Not long ago, camping was something that would kill you for any number of reasons. I know I mentioned water just a second ago, but water is full of diseases. But today, you turn on a faucet just during the last commercial break. I walked down the hall and got a little, uh, pressed a little button, and clean drinking water came out of it. Today, you turn on the faucet, you can fill up your glass with perfectly clean drinking water, and you don't even question it. How? How did that get there? We well, got a complex network of pipes made of plastic, oil. Uh, maybe you got copper pipes mined by machines, which run on oil, which originated from a massive storage tank made of plastic, oil. Before that, it went through a massive water treatment facility run on fossil fuels. Before that, it was treated with chlorine or ultraviolet light. The pH uh, was adjusted using different chemicals, which again were mined and refined using oil. So that water, which is disgusting, which again kills 3.4 million people a year, we don't even think about it because of fossil fuels. The people who do think about it, the people who do worry about it, the people who do need clean water, they don't need a solar panel. They don't need a windmill. They need a water treatment facility and we won't let them because we bask in the luxury of fossil fuels. And now we think we can deny them to the rest of the world. It is sick. Does it, is it making sense? Like like this, how this, how depraved this is? Like it's evil. It's twisted. It's, it's, it's really, it's one of the most disgusting things happening now. It's, you know, but and the reason we don't see it that way is because we see uh, you know world leaders coming together and photo ops and handshakes and high fives and backslapping, and uh, we think it's this great grand thing we're saving the planet. All that people are dying because they don't have fossil fuels. Next time you go to a sink and turn it on, thank fossil fuels. Just in your head, just be like, oh, man, thank goodness. Thank goodness, there's a coal power plant somewhere that's powering a water treatment facility that's giving me this clean water. Now, deny that or realize that that thought that you have in your brain, thank goodness it's clean water. People in the third world don't have that. And uh, convince yourself that you're a wonderful person for saving the planet. Because the planet wants to kill those people. one 800 93 Let's take a break. I Maybe if you want, I can do, I, I got, I, honestly, I could talk about this all day. I get so frustrated. Uh, Bert just wrote me, nature will kill you if you give it a chance. hmm You don't even have to try that hard. The only reason nature doesn't kill us today is because of fossil fuels. The only reason. one eight 933 We'll come back. I want to talk about Donald Trump and the greatest fighter pilot in American history. What those two uh, gentlemen have to do with each other. And um, did we do a proper recap of my interview with Donald? I don't know if we ever did. We must have. Anyway, that interview is on our Facebook page. You can check it out on The Mike Slater Show. Uh, On Facebook, just search for The Mike Slater Show. All right, last more to do. Coming up, Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word.
3: This is Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network.
2: Slater. Slater. Final conclusion of the hour. Um, Do I have the book on me? Hmm. I think it's in the hallway. Um, please read The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels by Alex Epstein. I talked to Alex years and years ago. I was living in Tennessee last I talked to Alex. And he, he was at the Ayn Rand Center, and we talked to him a lot then. And then uh, he left the Ayn Rand Center. It's like, oh, my gosh, what's he doing? And I didn't hear from him much until I heard him on Glenn Beck a couple months ago talking about the moral case for fossil fuels. He's the man. He's unbelievable. Um, You got to read the book. It's required reading for the Mike Slater show. It's fantastic. The moral case for fossil fuels. Um, And he has a line in it, and I'm going to butcher it. And I probably shouldn't even do it because it's so good. I don't want to mess it up. But the, the end of it is we need to change the planet for humans. And it's okay to do that. And in the book, he gives the example of the Netherlands. So a thousand years ago, people in the Netherlands, um, it's not that they needed more farmland, but they realized that if they drained the swamps, then the soil was very fertile. So they're like, all right, well, t- let's do that because we want to eat food. And they did a lot of that. And they drained the swamps. But then there were some floods. And they said, oh, geez, so what did they do? Well, they didn't blame climate change. The Netherlands designed this massive Complex system of dikes and dams and pumps and flood control and all the rest, and now half the country in the Netherlands, half of it lives below i think a f- either a foot or a meter I think it's a foot I think half the country lives um how do I word it below one foot above sea level, right so think a foot above sea level, half the country lives less than that, and twenty percent of the country lives below sea level <laughs> and they 're fine with it they they altered the earth for their sake for their survival and that's okay and that type of uh that that is only possible because of fossil fuels the engineering the constructing the maintenance the design all of that because of fossil fuels and the rest of the world can do the same the more fossil fuels we use the more prosperous we become and the more prosperous we become the more we can withstand the changes of the planet our goal can't be to stop the planet from changing that is absurd the goal needs to be to better adapt to an ever changing planet. One last thing I got two minutes um, People confuse pollution and c o two carbon dioxide pollution's no good we don't want pollution, but again, only technology can improve that and you can only get better technology like the nanotechnology we talked about earlier by being more advanced and we can only be more advanced by using fossil fuels so Pollution is one thing. CO2 is another. Everyone just assumes that carbon dioxide is bad. But why? You might as well assume that it's really good. Why do we assume that it's bad? Isn't that interesting? If someone says, right now, if I say, hey, we're going to pump more CO2 into the atmosphere, everyone's initial reaction is, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's terrible. Why? Why isn't your reaction, oh, great. (laughs) I think it should be either one of those. But everyone says it's really, really bad. Now, it turns out that more CO2 might be very, very good. There's a bunch of scientists who have taken the same uh, seed of different plants and crops and trees. And they keep everything the same, but they vary the amount of CO2. CO2 is plant food. So the more CO2 that you give these plants, they have a much higher yield. Cherries have a 59% higher yield. Strawberries, 42%. Wheat, 33%. Think about that. You get more CO2, you can grow 33% more wheat, everything else equal. Trees can grow twice as tall. You get the idea. So there's an argument out there that CO2 is not only not bad, but that it could be very good for the planet. Now, again, difference between pollution, like smog and CO2, those aren't the same thing, but they confuse both of them. We don't want smog, but we can figure that out. We can burn coal cleaner. We can trap you know, dangerous particles that would have been emitted. And all. We, we can figure that out. And again, the wealthier we become, the better we can do that. But CO2 isn't necessarily bad. Now, you may hear uh, a lot of people say, oh, 97% of scientists agree that uh, climate change is real. And, and, uh, and, and therefore, and you'll hear the president and the secretary of state say 97% of scientists agree. And now I heard the president say 99.5% of scientists agree that global warming is real. Therefore, you know, we have to do XYZ, give $100 billion to the third world, blah, 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 all, this, all these different things. But what they don't tell you is that 97% of scientists may agree that there's global warming, but A, they don't agree how much humans are causing it. Some can say none, and some can say all of it or anything in between. And they also don't say, that the scientists may or may not conclude that it's catastrophic. It's a very big difference to say, uh, yeah, there's global warming, but we're fine. It's not going to be a big deal. And there's global warming and we're all going to die unless we give more power to the federal government. Like that's a totally different thing. So when they say 97% of scientists agree, uh, they're intentionally being deceiving because scientists may not agree how much humans are causing global warming and may not agree with whether or not global warming will be catastrophic. They're intentionally misleading you. The moral case for fossil fuels. You'll love it. Read it this week. Mike Slater said the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word.
0: You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. From Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network.
2: Slater's America's the greatest country in the world. Thank you for being here. Merry Christmas. Um, Slater Radio on Twitter, Mike Slater Show on Facebook. Uh, I want to talk about the Donald here for a second, but um, from a different perspective. Hopefully, we uh, you know, you walk away from this. Um, Applying it to your life and other things as well. Uh, Our interview with the Donald, our 90-minute interview, is on our Facebook page. You can search for The Mike Slater Show on Facebook. We were supposed to do another interview yesterday, two days ago. Um, But we may do it again in uh, January. Uh, Another 90-minute interview. But uh, until then, what we just did is on, uh, again, our Facebook page. Um, I think we've talked about John Boyd on the show before. Uh, It may have been a while ago. John Boyd is the greatest fighter pilot in American history. He was... 33, and he wrote the uh, aerial attack study. So this is uh, the Bible of air combat and dogfighting. And he came up with, um, what did he call it? Uh, EM, EM theory, the energy maneuverability theory, which was the beginning of the F-15 and the F-16 and the A-10. Uh, he's the man. Like, if you're looking for a biography maybe to read this week, John Boyd. Uh, put it on your list. He's amazing. And he, it's a good story because he was never a good fit for the military, even though he was one of the best ever. And he, he left the military saying, or coming to the conclusion that he he had to come up with a, he had to make a choice. Am I going to be successful as in increase my rank? But if I do that, I'm going to have to sell out my my values and my principles. Or I can make a real difference and I can stick to my principles, even though, you know, in the world's perspective, it may not be successful. I may not be successful. And he would say every time you have a decision, you have to think about what direction you want to go. And he says, if you go that way, you can be somebody. And you'll have to make compromises and you'll have to turn your back on your friends but you'll be a member of the club and you'll get promoted and you'll get good assignments. Or you can go that way and, and do something. right? So the other direction was be something. This direction is do something. You can do something for your country and for your Air Force and for yourself. And if you decide you want to do something, you may not get promoted and you're not going to get the good assignments and you're certainly not going to be a favorite among your superiors, but you won't have to compromise yourself. And you can be true to your friends and to yourself. And you might make a difference. So to be somebody or to do something. And he would say in life, there's often a roll call. And that's when you have to make a decision to be or to do. Which way will you go? Sit on that one for a while to be or to do. Hmm. Anyway, so that's where I think we've talked about John Boyd on that. Story in the past, but I want to apply his principles to Donald Trump. So he came up with this system called um, observe, orient, decide, and act. It's the decision cycle, it's the process where we take in information, we observe, we orient ourselves based on that information, we make a decision, and then we act on it. And I want to talk about how Trump has been using that decision cycle in his campaign. So a couple of things. First of all, everyone does this, whether we know it or not, right? You, everyone, when making a decision, you observe, you orient yourself, you make a decision and you act on it. We do it over and over and over again all day long, all the time. The, but we may not realize that that's how we're doing it. But it was John Boyd who wrote it down and said, oh, this is how it works. The key to being successful at least when it comes to dogfighting and politicking, as we'll see. It's not just working through this process yourself, but it's getting inside the opponent's decision cycle and screwing them up. So not only do you have to observe, orient, decide, and act quickly and effectively, but you have to do it to disrupt your opponent's ability to make good decisions. And the way to do that is to change reality before they have time to react to it. And Boyd said that this is true in combat, it's true in sports, it's true in debate. The person who has the quicker decision cycle will be in control of any situation because they're not reacting to reality, they're shaping reality. And the opponent is always going to be a little bit behind. They're going to be a little bit behind you because they're forced to adapt to the reality that you created. And Boyd said that if the quicker person can maintain this mismatch, then the slower person is going to get more and more behind, and they're going to get disoriented and confused, and they're going to lose. Now, he would do it with dog fighting, and I think it makes sense with dogfighting, right? You want to be your aerial combat. You're the person um, who's making these decisions quicker about where to go, what to do, when to shoot, what, where to turn, all the rest. And if you can do that quicker than your opponent, You're shaping reality. They're reacting to the reality you're creating, and you're going to be able to get behind them and kill them. It's true in football. right? You want a quarterback who doesn't react to changes. You want a quarterback who controls the field, who makes the changes that the defense has to react to. Makes sense, right? One last point here, and then we'll get to Trump. That decision cycle. Observe, orient, decide, and act. I want to throw one more thing in there. Ambiguity. If your opponent doesn't know where you're going, then they can't anticipate what you're going to do next. So if you can operate in a way where your opponent doesn't know what you're going to do, where you're going to go, then they're less likely to be able to observe, orient, decide, and act. And again, you're the one in control, right? If you're being ambiguity, ambiguity, if you're showing ambiguity, and you're not telling, you're not showing your hand, right? They're not able to observe, or they can observe, but they don't know what's next. So if they can't, uh, if they're not unsure what's next, then they can't orient themselves. And if they can't orient themselves, and they can't decide, and they're not going to act, and you're the person. Who's in control? Ambiguity. So without even spelling it out in more detail, which I'll do in the next segment, do you see how Trump has done this his entire campaign so far? Which has been, I guess, six months. Dan McLaughlin says no candidate has ever been so effective at altering the reality around them. And he's doing it in a way that crashes the other candidates. Observe, orient, decide, and act decision cycles. Uh, he's the person in control, and he's vague, and, and no one knows what's next, and everyone's reacting to the reality that Donald Trump creates. And it was from decades ago. He's, he's been doing this forever. Uh, first, will he or won't he even run? He's been playing that game since 1980. Okay, so now it looks like he's probably going to run. Okay, uh, is he going to be a Democrat or is he going to be a Republican? Which party is he going to run with? No one has any idea. And because he didn't, no one knew, the Democrats weren't about to attack him because he may run as a Democrat, and the Republicans weren't going to attack him because he might run as a Republican. So no one knew what to do. All right, fine. So he makes the decision to run as a Republican. Great. But maybe he's going to break away from the party and run as a third-party candidate. Remember the very first debate? What was the first question? Um, it was Who here, wasn't it? Who here promises to support the nominee at the end of this process? And he was the only person who didn't raise his hand. Why? Because it was in the beginning. So at that point, Jeb, who was leading, was more concerned about Trump running third party than Trump beating Jeb in the Republican Party. So Jeb didn't want to attack Trump because he didn't want to push him too far away. But because it took him so long to, uh, to make any you know, real attacks, Donald Trump was the person setting the reality. Trump got the initial advantage because he, he put everyone else off guard. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to react. They couldn't. They could observe, but they didn't know what to do. So they couldn't orient themselves. They couldn't decide. They couldn't act. Trump, again, writing the reality that everyone else has to react to. And then even the policies, he states. You know, he, he's on TV all the time. The reason people watch is because no one knows what he's going to say. And the reason that's exciting is because he's not given the same old policy positions that candidates have been given for the last 15 years, right? Like you get these other candidates up there. They're talking about the same stuff that we've been talking about for decades. But he's always saying something new. And saying something that gets everyone in a tizzy. It is absolutely brilliant how he's been able to command and control these last six months. And he's doing it as imagine the Trump campaign as an aerial combat, like his dog fighting. Trump is clearly the person who's leading. I don't mean leading in polls. I mean, he's setting the reality and everyone else has to react to it. And as long, here's my, my prediction, as long as he can do that, he will be in the lead and he'll win the minute. That someone else is able to do their decision cycle faster, right? The, only, the, the first moment that, let's say, Ted Cruz is able to set reality, then that will be the beginning of the end of Donald Trump's campaign. Because Donald Trump doesn't do well to reacting. He's the person who establishes reality. And he's been doing it for six months, he's been doing it for decades, and his businesses and all the rest. The minute that someone else can do it better, then Donald Trump will go down in the polls. But until then, no one has any no one has any clue. Like there's no 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 one's been even close to doing that. So if he can keep setting reality and everyone else has to play defense, he'll win it. one 90 33 93. 33 93. I want to come back and give one last example here. Not about Trump, but how someone else in the campaign um was able to set a reality against another person in the campaign. And I think this example is even probably more clear if the last example didn't make sense. This one's even more clear of, Oh, someone's clearly in command here. Someone's clearly is setting reality and the other person's clearly reacting to it. And if you're doing that, the person who's setting the reality is going to win nearly every time. So I'll play a clip of a debate from a couple of debates ago, which I think clearly, um, uh, is a clear example of this. We'll do it next. one 933 93 Mike Slater, So the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike
0: Slater. We'll continue in a moment on the Blaze Radio Network.
2: Yeah. So we're talking about the um, something that John Boyd came up with, greatest fighter pilot in American history. Observe, orient, decide, and act. It's called the decision cycle. Uh, and my, my thesis is that Donald Trump does this quicker and more effectively than anyone. And if you're able to observe, orient, decide, and act quicker than anyone else, then you set reality. You establish reality. And everyone else has to react to it. And my prediction is that as long as Donald Trump is able to establish reality and have everyone else react to it, then he will win. just like if you're in aerial combat and you can do it faster, you'll win. If you're a quarterback and you can do you can observe Orient decide and act faster than the defense. and if you can get the defense to react to you, then you'll win. right Same thing with politics observe orient decide and act he does it better than anyone i want to give another example here of um, of this but not with donald trump this is a back and forth between rubio and jeb bush i think it was two debates ago it was the cnn debate whenever that was um listen to these principles here or keep in mind that these this this principle here the observe orient decide and act and look how jeb bush totally doesn't have this right like absolutely did not use it um and I'll explain how ambiguity plays a role in this as well. But let, check out this clip.
4: Sun Sentinel says Rubio should resign, not rip us off. When they say Floridian sent you to Washington to do a job, when they say you act like you hate your job, do you? Yeah, let me say, uh, I, I, I read that editorial today with a great amusement. It's actually evidence of the bias that exists in the American media today. But, but do you hate your job? Let me, let me answer your question on the Sun Sentinel editorial today. Back in 2004, one of my predecessors to the Senate by the name of Bob Graham, a Democrat, ran for president, missing over 30% of his votes. I don't recall them calling for his resignation. Is that the standard? Later that year, in 2004, John Kerry ran for president, missing close to 60 to 70% of his votes. I don't recall the sun In fact, the Sun-Sentinel endorsed him. In 2008, Barack Obama missed 60 or 70% of his votes, and the same newspaper endorsed him again. So this is another example of the double standard that exists in this country between the mainstream media and the conservative media. John, can I I bring something up here? Because I'm a
5: constituent of the senator, and I helped him, and and I expected that he would do constituent service, which means that he shows up to work. Uh, He got endorsed by the Sun-Sentinel because he was the most talented guy in the field. He's a gifted politician. But, Marco, when you signed up for this, this was a six-year term, and you should be showing up to work. I mean, literally, the Senate, what is it, like a French work week? You get, like, three days where you have to show up? You can campaign or just resign and let someone else take the job. There are a lot of people living paycheck to paycheck in Florida as well. They're looking for a senator that will fight for them each and every day.
4: Well, it's interesting. Over the last few weeks, I've listened to Jeb as you've walked around the country and said that you're modeling your campaign after John McCain, that you're going to launch a furious comeback the way he did, by fighting hard in New Hampshire and places like that, carrying your own bag at the airport. You know how many votes John McCain missed when he was carrying out that furious comeback that you're now modeling it I'm, under? He wasn't my concern. No, Jeb, like I don't remember, center. well, let me tell you, I don't remember you ever complaining about John McCain's vote record. The only reason why you're doing it now is because we're running for the same position, and someone has convinced you that attacking me is going to help you. Well, I've been, Here's the bottom line. I'm not. My campaign is going to be about the future of America. It's not going to be about attacking anyone else on this stage. I will continue to have tremendous admiration and respect for Governor Bush. I'm not running against Governor Bush. I'm not running against anyone on the stage. I'm running for because there is no way we can elect Hillary Clinton John. to continue the policies of Bush.
2: Hey, so All right. Catch that. That was, that's brutal for Bush right there. <laughs> that was awful. Uh, and the end result of that was not only did he look like an idiot, uh, but Jeb ended up apologizing for insulting the French with that pathetic prepared French joke. He insulted, he, he apologized for insulting the French. Okay, that's All right, so here's the deal. Here's why that didn't work. That didn't work because he paid for a newspaper attack ad uh, a few days before the debate on that point, which gave Rubio plenty of time to prepare a, a response to it. And notice the order of operations of that clip right there. Jeb didn't attack Rubio first. The moderator tried to get Rubio on this point. Rubio hit it out of the park, and then Jeb with no ability at all to observe and orient and decide and act. He just went for another attack and just like walked right into it. This is Jonathan last from the weekly standard. He said Bush's attack was almost certainly a premeditated set piece yet. He didn't have the political sense to see that Rubio was in a very good frame coming off an answer where he beat the snot out of the moderators. Bush had no ability to read the scene And understand that it would have been better in that moment not to take the shot. He had a plan, so he robotically stuck to it. In other words, Jeb was very bad at the decision cycle. He was bad at observing and orienting and deciding and acting. And he needed at that moment to observe that Rubio hit it out of the park. And he needed to reorient to a different direction, but he didn't. And that's why he just got clobbered. Think of Boyd again. And again, he lost the strength of ambiguity there because uh, he lost the element of surprise because uh, Rubio knew it was coming. So think again of Boyd, the greatest fighter pilot in American history. Never tipped the enemy off to where he was going, which direction he was turning, what he was planning on doing next. He did the decision cycle faster and more effectively and efficiently than anyone else. I want to take a break here. I want to read uh, one last quote. I'll do it when we get back of um, Winston Churchill. Because you may be thinking, okay, I get, I get, it. I see what you're saying, but what's the importance of this? Right? Let's, let's go back to Trump uh, Trump's ability to disorient, uh, Trump's ability to establish reality and have other people react to it. By going, on, you know, by going on TV every day and saying something new that gets everyone in a tizzy. And then uh, instead of people saying, uh, hey, Jeb, what's your plan for America? Every single question is, hey, Jeb, what do you think about what Donald Trump said? It's a perfect example. Trump sets reality. Everyone has to react to it. What's the importance of that? How big of an effect will that have on the campaign? And I'll explain real quick when we get back. Spread the word.
0: This is Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio. On
3: the Blaze Radio Network.
0: Later on the Blaze Radio Network.
2: Slater Center, so wrap up this uh, argument here. What's the importance of all this? The uh, John Boyd, greatest fighter pilot in American history. The observe, orient, decide, and act decision cycle. The fact that Trump can do it quicker and more effectively than anyone else. The, the fact that he can establish reality; everyone else has to react to it. The fact that he uh, is in, uh, uh, doesn't tell anyone his next move. Right, he's able to disorient confuse people. They don't know what's next. Keeps them further behind. How big of a difference does it make? Um, I want to tell a quick story of Winston Churchill. It's not so much a story as much as a quote. Um, He said that battles are won, like military battles, are won in two ways. Either through slaughter or maneuver. And he said the best generals... Always put the bigger emphasis on maneuver over slaughter. He said the greatest generals were masters of the military arts. Meaning they would find ways to catch their opponent off guard in some way, some surprise or whatever. I love this quote here. He said, great commanders have not only common sense and reasoning power, not only imagination, but also... An element of deception. An original and sinister touch, which leaves the enemy puzzled as well as beaten. And it is because military leaders are credited with gifts of this order, which enable them to be held in such high esteem. For if their art were nothing more than the dreary process of exchanging lives and counting heads at the end, they would rank much lower in the scale of human esteem. I love that line, right? Like, the greatest generals leave the enemy puzzled as well as beaten. And then Churchill, after that quote, he went on to compare commanders in battle with politicians, um, which is pretty much what we did in the last two segments here. But in battle, it's, it's a balance between size and strategy. Trump right now, he's got both. But the strategy is better than anyone else who's ever run for president. We'll see if he can last. Now, I say all this, and I I do think there's, it'll get more difficult for him when the field whittles down to three or so. And that's because the other candidates, the two remaining candidates, two or three remaining candidates, will have a better chance of themselves creating reality that Trump will have to react to. And again, if that happens, then uh, I don't think Trump will be able to at least be as successful as he has been. Now, all of this I have a qualifier on. But again, I don't even, I, don't, I really don't think if, he, if Trump can continue, no matter how crazy, no matter how extreme Trump goes, if he can control the narrative, even if it's a crazy narrative, even if you disagree with everything he says, even if everyone disagrees with it, if he can control the narrative, he'll win. I really believe that. It's crazy, but, but that's what it takes to win. But I, th- I think it does in this reality show that we call the campaign for the president. But maybe there's one way out. Now, this is all assuming, too, that you think Trump is the most extreme, which is a big qualifier. You may not believe that. I was at a wedding uh, last weekend, Philadelphia. A lot of progressives there, a lot of liberals, a lot of people who (laughs) hate Donald Trump. They say that Trump is the embodiment of everything they hate about conservatism. And part of me says, fine, let them hate us. But then I think, well, hold on, there's no reason to hate us. Because the things I believe, you shouldn't hate that thought or opinion or me for having it. I think the banning Muslims is a perfect example of the one way that Canada has a uh, an escape plan. Glenn Beck has talked more than anyone about the Overton window. So you know all about it. Trump may be s- people hate Trump so much. You know when he came out and said I you know ban I want to ban Muslims for a limited time or whatever. People hate that. People think that that's so crazy. And he's so conservative, so outrageous. It makes Ted Cruz seem like a moderate. It makes Ted Cruz seem like a reasonable adult in the room. When Ted Cruz comes back and says, well, you know, maybe we don't need to ban all Muslims, but gosh, we should ban uh, people on visas from certain uh, countries based on certain criteria. And in the end, that's a policy that no one can disagree with. Now, if there were no Donald Trump and Ted Cruz came out and said that, then he'd be the most extreme person. And people say, oh, my gosh, you got You want to ban certain people from certain countries for certain reasons? That's crazy. I hate Ted Cruz. He's the embodiment of everything I hate about conservatives. But everyone's hatred is so focused on Donald Trump that Ted Cruz waltzes in and says what otherwise would have been crazy and extreme, but now it seems pretty reasonable. <laughs> The Overton window hasn't just been moved. It's been shattered. The Overton window, real quick, um, there's a scale, if you will, on uh, what is reasonable opinions to have and things to say. Uh, And on one extreme is uh, unacceptable speech, and on the other extreme is unacceptable speech. And then towards the middle is policy, just general popular opinion. And the Overton window is this window of what you're allowed to say or think. And right now, and for decades, that's been defined by progressives, right? This is what you're allowed to think. This is what you're allowed to say. Anything that deviates from this, you're a hater, a bigot, a racist, and all the rest. And that window's getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Instead of trying to just move the window in one direction or another, which maybe you could do, but it wouldn't move that far. Donald Trump has come in and said, what window? And just, it's in a million pieces. There is no more window. So he can come in and say some crazy things, and then other people can come in and say something that would have been outside of the window of reasonable speech. But now there is no window, so everything's on the table, and that's good. Because again, Ted Cruz now seems like a moderate compared to Trump. Interesting. So at the same time that, that everyone at the, this wedding I was at last week, everyone hates Trump with the fire of a thousand suns. And that's bad for conservatism, right? It goes back to what I was saying a second ago. Like, gosh, I don't, I don't want you to hate conservatives because of, like I don't. Right. They hate Trump and that's bad for conservatism. But Trump also makes Ted Cruz look moderate, which is good for conservatism.
3: Hmm.
2: There was a liberal writer in the Washington Post. He said, I can't believe I'm saying this. But I might prefer President Trump. Why? Because he believes that Trump is more likely to cut deals with Democrats on taxes and Planned Parenthood and Obamacare. But he said that Cruz will die on those hills and never compromise where he knows that he shouldn't. Cruz is is I think way more conservative than Donald Trump and more consistent. But if it weren't for Donald Trump, then. Ted Cruz would be the extremist. But now Ted Cruz is more electable than ever. That would be something. What if the fact that Donald Trump is in this race makes Ted Cruz the reasonable, electable moderate? Be awesome. one 888 Slater Radio on Twitter. Um, getting some tweets coming in here uh someone says your theory on trump i agree the others are always in react mode but how else given trump's domination in the media Mm, yeah i know i'm totally with you i don't i don't know i don't know what else the other candidates would do (laughs) i have no clue how else to break through and that's the brilliance of it though. i don't know what it would take I, i think it's gotta it's gotta whittle down before anyone has a chance of breaking it's gotta there's gotta be three candidates before anyone has a chance of, of uh, breaking Trump's hold on the media. 1-888-933-93. I'll read some more tweets when we get back. Slater Radio is the is our Twitter handle, Slater Radio. Mike Slater, show The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word.
3: You're listening to Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network.
0: Next generation of talk radio. This is Mike Slater.
4: Slater, Slater so well.
2: all right, enough Trump talk for the uh, for the day. Coming up next, I want to talk about um, something Ted Cruz's campaign is doing, which I think is absolutely brilliant. Uh, President Obama did it, or Senator Obama did it in 2007. He had the behavioral psychologist's dream team. Uh, I'll explain what that all meant. Um, but he used behavioral psychology more than anyone ever. And now Cruz's campaign is doing it to a whole new level. Kind of a creepy level, if you, perhaps, but uh, we'll share that story coming up next. First, though, one of my favorite American traditions took place last Saturday. It starts with Moral Worcester. He was a paperboy in Bangor, Maine. And when he was 12 years old, he won a trip to Washington, D.C. Right, you go to D.C., been there before, maybe when you were a kid, you do all the sights and sounds, but there was one thing in particular that, Moved him the most, even when he was just a 12-year-old boy. He never forgot it. 20, 30 years later, he went on to found a uh, a wreath company, Worcester Wreaths. And it was just the first year he was in business, and he had a bunch of uh, extra wreaths left over as we were approaching. He was approaching Christmas, and he thought, well, what am I going to do with all these things? And he thought back to when he was twelve years old, and he called up Arlington National Cemetery and said, "Hey, I got all these, I got all these wreaths here. What should we do with them? I'll give them to you for free." So he went down to Arlington, and they laid wreaths at the oldest section of the cemetery. It was the section that receives the received the least amount of visitors. every year since then it's grown last saturday and by the way if you've never been to arlington national cemetery it's absolutely it's beautiful it's it's uh, haunting it's inspiring it's no place like it last saturday there were 70,000 people in arlington national cemetery the traffic jam Uh, was miles long. If you wanted to get there, you're better off just parking miles away and then walking over a couple of bridges to get there. And as you're walking, you're going to see all the cars parked with license plates from all across the country. 70,000 people were there to place 240,000 wreaths across Arlington Cemetery, one at each gravesite. And every single person there is a volunteer. And every single wreath was donated. Donated by companies like Hobby Lobby. And of course, Worcester wreaths. Hans von Spakovsky. Cool name. Wrote a great article about uh, about this. About his trip to Arlington Last Cemetery. He laid a couple wreaths himself uh, as a volunteer. He laid a wreath at the grave marker for John Foster Dulles. Um, and his wife, Janet Dulles. Which is what the airport, who the airport is named after in D.C. Uh, he was the Secretary of State. Under Eisenhower. And uh, Hans says. My Russian father. Would have been pleased. That I laid two wreaths on that grave marker. In honor of Major. John Dulles and his. Fierce fight against communism. The murderous ideology that drove my father from his homeland. He also laid wreaths at the gravestones of. Service members who served in Cuba in the Spanish-American War as members of Roosevelt's Rough Riders. So you have Secretary of State with Eisenhower. You got Rough Riders. All buried in the same area as our service members who died in Iraq and Afghanistan. Right next to some stones that just have a soldier's name. No rank, no date. And of course all that not far from the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. But it doesn't matter. Every gravestone gets one wreath, but the name of it is now Wreaths Across America. It's not just Arlington National Cemetery. We have some beautiful cemeteries here in San Diego. One of them's Fort Rosecrans, right up on a hill. Um, it's 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 unbelievable. It overlooks the city, overlooks the bay, and the city. It's stunning. Headstones as far as you can see. It's perfect symmetry. And it's a very, it's a very hilly, uh, it's a little peninsula. It's, and it's, it's just, so you you see that you see the, the hill with the gravestones and then it dips down and you, you don't see them. And then it dips back up a little further in the day. It's just, it's unbelievable. And the four, the four pictures, unbelievable. Like before, like when you get there in the morning and then when you, people lay all the and you get there that afternoon. And now each one of those white gravestones has a green wreath with a red bow on it. As far as the eye can see, what a simple and powerful. Thank you. For their service and a reminder once again, and there can never be enough of these. A reminder to our active duty soldiers that your service will never be forgotten. Morrell started this company, his company in 1971. He sold 500 wreaths that year. Today they sell half a million. It's pretty good. But that doesn't matter. He doesn't care. More important than his business is the legacy that he left. He says, I know our wreaths placed on the veterans' grave each year is a very small gesture. I only wish we could do more. How about that legacy left by Moral? Pretty good. Almost as good as the legacy left by our veterans. Mike Slater, show the Blaze Radio
3: Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater.
0: Part of the next generation of talk radio.
3: On the Blaze Radio Network.
0: To Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio. Only on the Blaze Radio Network.
2: Slater Crusaders. America's the greatest country in the world. Thank you for being here. Uh, just spent some time talking about the Donald here. I want to go to Steve, who's in uh, Wisconsin. What's going on, Steve? How are you today?
5: Hey, Mike. How's it going?
2: Good. Merry Christmas. Yeah. What's on your mind? Um I thought your take
5: on Donald Trump was just, phenomenal it's a great perspective on what he's done to win and you know i i hear so many people say how hillary will try uh, even glenn beck says hillary will trounce the donald right Mm -hmm. i mean that's that's something that he's been he's been just kind of like really he doesn't like him at all well (laughs) how is she how is she gonna beat? she's so hollow how is she gonna beat this guy I mean this guy will run rings around her I mean there will be no way and you know it's it's such a shame Um, I just I love your I love the blaze man I mean it's just so disheartening to see you know I hear you on one hand earlier in your comments you were talking about you know like Beck will say that Trump is a liberal totally you just said he makes Cruz looked like a moderate. So, <laughs> what is it? Is he is he the extremist that you're saying he is, or is he the liberal that that Beck is just crying out, saying, telling everybody, that even went on Hannity and said that. I mean, it, it's just getting so frustrating. You know, you, you guys are not being fair and balanced. You know, Rush Limbaugh, he he hasn't he hasn't um, ex, he hasn't endorsed anybody, but he treats his customers us. Like we're the smartest people in the world. I mean I studied I listen to so much stuff I know I mean I have such a feel for this and, and then mm-hmm. I get treated like I'm an idiot for for liking what Trump's doing.
2: Yeah, well Steve. Yeah, it, it,
5: it's amazing.
2: Yeah, I appreciate pretty, pretty, um Who who else do you like other than Trump, if I can ask?
5: I love Cruz. Yeah. Um um to me, um Rubio was a liar from the very beginning with his with his um, immigration thing. I used to listen to so many speeches with Rubio before he became senator when he promised there'd be absolutely no amnesty. And Rush was just playing. Uh, I mean, Mark Levin last night was just playing a soundtrack of Rubio saying it's it totally would ruin our immigration system if if we were to allow these people that cut in line to get in. It would it would just yeah. smash our whole system apart so i mean rubio was my favorite i mean i back a year ago i used to say rubio would be the next president he's so he's so smooth but he's a turret he's a liar
2: yeah <laughs> steve Liza, I pr-
5: to mark levin huh
2: do i listen to mark levin the great one get off my phone i wouldn't do that to you steve i won't tell you, you got fun. of course we listen to mark levin he's the man um steve i appreciate the call i, I, I we had some stuff we want to get to here but i, I very well said brother um On your first question, I'll get to why I asked you who you like second best um, in a minute here. But uh, your first point, you know, is Donald Trump an extremist or is he a liberal? That's exactly the ambiguity that I was talking about earlier. And where other politicians perhaps have seen that, where conventional wisdom has said that ambiguity is a problem, is bad, is no good. uh, Trump has been able to turn that to his advantage where no one knows what he is which makes it so to go back to what i was saying last hour no one can observe or you can observe but you can't orient you can't decide and you can't act and that's why he will always have the upper hand uh someone just wrote me on uh, twitter kyle said slater do you think that um when trump starts to beat hillary in a national election poll the media will bury his stories and silence him that's a really good question um, and that sort of goes, I think, what you were saying is Walmart. I, I don't, or Steve, I don't think the media has any idea what they would do if it comes down to Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. I don't, and I say that because I don't think the media has any idea what to do with Donald Trump now. Like, they're, they're still mesmerized by him. They don't get it. And they're still being played by Donald Trump. Like, there's no real reason why Donald Trump should spend so much time on all the media, news outlets. Like, he's, he was on Morning Joe for 45 minutes the other day. He called in. No show will take someone calls in. <laughs> He'll call into shows. People will, media uh, will go to the Trump Tower to record an interview with Donald Trump. That's crazy. No other candidate can get the media to come to them, get the anchors to come to them. That's cra- so the media is totally getting played by Donald Trump right now. And as much as the media obviously would be in the tank for Hillary in any situation, I think Donald Trump may be smart enough shrewd enough to continue to play the media to his advantage. Does that make sense? I think Trump, as much as the media would want to support Hillary and bury Trump, I don't think they would because Trump is too good at this game called politics. (laughs) But again, we've been saying from the jump that he's not uh, running a political campaign. He's running a business negotiation. And that's why no one can understand what he's doing. Um, I, I can't speak on behalf of Glenn certainly, uh, or anyone else here on the Blaze. Um, but I hope no one that 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 I I don't like Steve that you say you know you feel like you're uh, being talked down to or uh you know someone thinks you're stupid or something. Um, I don't know. I don't I don't think people think that. I don't know. I don't want to speak on behalf of anyone, but um, we've been taking our coverage from a thirty thousand foot perspective. You know, I haven't said if I support Trump or don't support Trump. I don't think that's my role. I think you can determine that. Um we've just been trying to analyze how. <laughs> like what is it, what's going on here? How is he doing this? Why can't people understand we've been trying to understand how this is working, more so than telling you what to think or who to support. That's certainly not my job. Steve, I appreciate you being here, man. Um can we talk about Ted Cruz for a minute? Because I read something the other day that so real quick, I think it's going to come down to Trump, Cruz, and Rubio. Okay. Uh, Trump because he's so far in the lead, Cruz because he's the real conservative candidate, and Rubio because he's the sharpest um, and smoothest and the establishment guy In the end of the day. Uh, if I had to put my money on who I think will win, again, this is not who I want to win necessarily, but this is who I think will win. I think it will be Rubio. Um, but I, I that's for another day. That's neither here nor there. Uh, but it's going to come down to those three guys. Cruz though, Cruz has something up his sleeve here that I don't want anyone to underestimate the the power of. So Rubio is going to have the money, right? the establishment money and support, but Cruz is going to have this trick. That so, so so think about it like this: Trump's got the media, you know, wrapped around his finger. Ruby is going to have the money in the establishment, and Ted Cruz is going to have what? This, what I'm going to tell you about right here. First, let's back it up. Um, the president, or Senator Obama, in 2007, he gathered up six of the best behavioral psychologists from across the country, from Princeton, Arizona State, Chicago, Columbia, UCLA, and UC San Diego. They called it the behavioral psychologist's dream team, and they used a few uh, tricks, if you will, a few subtle changes in the way that campaign volunteers would talk to people in order to change people's behavior in support of President Obama. Little things that I'm going to tell you about right now, and, and they seem so stupid that you will brush them off and say, Pff, there's no way that that makes a difference, but it made a huge difference. I want to find, gosh, time is of the essence here. All right, I forget the exact number. I'm going to share the story. I'll give you ballpark numbers, and I'll come back, and I'll find the exact numbers in a second. But you know when you go to a hotel, and uh, you'll see a sign in the bathroom, and it says, if you would like to reuse these towels, uh, you know, hang them back up, or put them on the floor, and we'll wash them, right? We want to conserve water. Whatever. So some scientists took a hotel. This has nothing to do with the campaign, but this is just to prove how influenced we can be by subtle changes. So they uh, took a hotel and they put a sign in every bathroom that said, if you would like to reuse the towels, please hang them up. Okay, great. So a certain number of people reused their towels. A month later, they put a new sign in every room. And the sign said, a majority of people in this hotel reuse their towels. Would you please reuse your towel? And I forget the exact number. This is what I'll look up in a second. But it was something like 33% more people use their towels or reuse their towels than before. All because that sign went from saying, hey, could you please reuse your towel to, did you know a majority of the people in this hotel reuse their towel? 33% more people reuse their towel. Just that subtle change, that subtle peer pressure and influence. Month that goes by, they do it again. This time, the sign says, did you know that a majority of people in this room have reused their towels? The number of people who reused their towels went up again, another 40%. By the way, that's a kind of creepy sign because when you go to a hotel, you don't really want to think that anyone else ever stayed in that hotel before you. <laughs> you kind of have this illusion that we're the first person to ever stay in that room. So it's kind of weird to be like, Jordy, people who have stayed in this room. Other people have stayed in this room? What? That's gross. But still, another 30 40%, whatever, more people use their towel. Reuse their towel. Isn't that wild? Subtle little tiny thing. So you know what the uh, Obama campaign team did? Someone comes to your door. Yes, what can I do you for? Oh, hi, I'm Charlie. I'm from the uh, elect Barack Obama for president team. Did you know that a majority of your neighbors have said they're going to vote for Barack Obama for president? That right there influenced people in a significant way. That little element of peer pressure. Did you know that a majority of your neighbors just like the sign that said, did you know a majority of the people who stayed in this room have reused? It's the same thing. And that's a technique that was uh, come up with by the behavioral psychologist's dream team, and it is brilliant. Not only that, but uh, the volunteers, they would uh, knock on your door. And it turns out that not who you vote for, but whether or not you voted, is public record. So they would knock on your door and they'd say, oh, Mr. Jones here. Uh, it says here that you voted in the past. Do you plan on voting again? on Tuesday. And just that little bit of like wait, you people know that I voted? You know that I voted? That's a little more peer pressure, just that increased people's uh, likelihood to vote. Not only that, but they after the person says, "Yeah, yeah, I'll vote for President Obama." They would say, "Oh, um, do you mind if you sign this piece of paper here saying that you promised to vote on Tuesday?" People are more likely to follow through when they sign that paper. Not only that, but the volunteers would when the person would say, "Yeah, yeah, I'll vote." The volunteer would say, "When do you plan on voting?" I don't know. I'll vote sometime on Tuesday. When, when exactly are you going to vote before work? Mm, I don't know. Maybe nah, I can't do it in the morning. Oh, are, are you going to take a lunch break? And they would ask people exactly when they're voting. And then they would plan the day out. They would plan that Tuesday out with the person. Okay. I'm going to go to work. I'm going to, uh, uh, get off work and then I'm going to go vote after work. And they would try to influence people to vote as soon in the day as possible in case things came up. And, uh, you know, at night when they were planning on voting, right? These little tiny things that the Obama campaign team did that influenced people just enough. How much? Let's say it influenced 5%. That's huge. I don't know. I don't know how much it influenced people, but a significant amount. The behavioral psychologist dream team. I want to take a break here. I'll come back and talk about how Ted Cruz has taken that to a whole new level. So where Trump has the media, media obsession, media obsession, on his side where Rubio will have the establishment money and uh the smooth talking and good looks and youth and sort of Obama 2007 on his right you know what I mean like presentation on his side Cruz has this and I think it could be as important as those other two people's things we'll break it all down next Mike Slater show the Blaze radio network spread the word
3: you're listening to
0: Mike Slater
3: on the Blaze Radio Network.
0: Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network.
2: All right, let's see uh, how much we can get out here. So, again, crews... Trump-Rubio, I think it's going to come down to those three. Trump's got the media in his pocket. Uh, Rubio will have the uh, money and the establishment. Uh, What's Cruz got? I think Cruz has a team. I know he has a team of behavioral psychologists and statisticians back in his campaign headquarters in Houston. And I think that is going to be be all the difference. Um, So we explained how behavioral psychology was used by President Obama's team back in 2007. Uh, It's being kicked up a notch by Ted Cruz's campaign. By the way, this stuff's all over. the Behavioral psychology is used everywhere you go. There's a reason why when you go into a grocery store, uh, the sale signs are in red and yellow because that's the most noticeable color and it creates a sense of urgency and hunger. Notice for sale signs are not in blue. Why not? Uh, If something's, you know, organic, it's green, right? We think that means fresh. There's reasons for this stuff. Behavioral psychology all the time. Also, listen to the music that's playing when you walk into Grocery stores, there's, everywhere you go in a grocery store, every single thing you look at is purposeful. The fact that the, the fresh produce is right when you walk in creates an element, a sense of freshness and whatnot. Obviously, the milk is in the back. Um, but listen to the music when you walk in. That's done on purpose as well. Anyway, cruise took has taken this to a whole new level. So the Washington Post tells a story of a cruise volunteer who's about to knock on someone's door. But first, he gets out his iPhone and finds out what kind of person is going to answer the door. Is this person going to be a relaxed leader? Are they a temperamental conservative? Maybe they're a true believer. Well, it turns out this was a 64-year-old grandmother who was a stoic traditionalist. Okay, so what does that mean? Uh, If you're a stoic traditionalist, according to the Cruz campaign, then your top- uh, concern is probably the president's use of executive orders on immigration. Not only is the cruise campaign able to, to figure out what probably is your biggest concern, but they're also able to figure out how that volunteer should talk to you in what way should they talk to you? What is the, uh, approach that, um, uh, is m- most appealing to this person? So this grandmother, because she's a stoic traditionalist, um, the volunteer is is going to talk to her in a confident, warm, and straight-to-the-point way. And they're going to talk about immigration. They're going to talk about guns. Now, if this woman was a true believer or a temperamental conservative or any of the other different categories of conservatives that the campaign has come up with, then the volunteer would not only talk about different issues, but talk about them in a different way. This is... Brilliant. This is tailor designed door knocking politics. There's no such thing as one size fits all anymore in anything. Everything's custom made in this Uber generation, right? Everything is specialized, tailor made just to you to fit your needs at this moment. And in the next segment, I'll talk about how this happens more in the free market uh, as well. But it's, this is the first time that this is being done to politics. Because in the past, one size fits all, a politician would knock on a hundred doors with one message. And they would deliver it in one way. And maybe it would be appealing to five people. But now the cruise volunteers can knock on a hundred doors. And they can realize that there's a hundred different people, different types of people, who, and they can determine that each person... Uh, has a specific issue that is most appealing to them and how to talk to that person in a specific way that will be most appealing to that person. So now instead of getting maybe five out of 100 people, their message resonating, now it may be 80 out of 100 people. That is a huge difference. Even if it was five in the past, it was five out of 100 and now it's eight out of 100. That's a huge difference. It's called psychographic targeting. think thinking Slater, hold on. Well, how do they know what type of person I am? They judge this based off your consumer habits, what you buy, where you buy it, when you buy, your Facebook posts, the magazine subscriptions you have, the car you drive, where you live. You want to know how many data points they have on you? They could. As many as 50,000 data points. And they rate your openness, your conscientiousness, your extroversion, your agreeableness, and your neuroticism. They put you into a category and they... uh, work from there it is brilliant where trump is launching bombs to get supporters ted cruz has a team of snipers and i think precision will win the Slater. game
0: part of the next generation of talk radio on the blaze radio network
2: One last segment here. We'll talk about uh, Ted Cruz. We'll wrap up this story. So we're talking about behavioral psychology and how... Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't look up those numbers. Gosh, golly, Slater. Get it together. Um, I will in the next segment. Flippin', please remind me during commercial. Um, uh, talking about behavioral psychology and how Senator Obama used it in 2008 and how Ted Cruz is using it today uh, way more than anyone else. And... Obama was using it in 2007 in ways to try and and convince you to vote by saying stuff like did you know a majority of your neighbors have agreed to vote for President Obama little peer pressure stuff like that slight uh, subtle influences of behavior which have a dramatic effect Ted Cruz's campaign has taken it to the next level and they have uh, up to 50,000 data points I don't know on who and I don't know who they determine how who to have data points on I don't know all that um, and I, I hope people do more research on all this stuff because this is so fascinating. But um, they use that information, and basically, so what? Did I they have five categories. Here it is. I got them written down here. The five categories: personality categories, openness, conscientiousness, extraversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. So they find your personality based off of fifty thousand data points, and then they put you into a category of what type of conservative you are. Are you a stoic traditionalist? Are you a true believer, et cetera. And depending on what type of conservative you are, they tailor, make a message to appeal to you. And then they present it in a way that would best appeal to you because someone who may like something, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know who, I don't, I don't know all the details. I don't know if you're a stoic traditionalist, if you would like it this way versus the other, but someone may like a message about gun control in a quick to the point way. And another person may like a message about gun control in this big picture kind of way. Everyone's a little bit different like that. So if you have, let's say you score high levels of neuroticism. Okay. And Ted Cruz's campaign finds you at an NRA rally. So they know you like guns, but you score high, you know, on the neurotic level. They're going to send you an ad, and this is true. They send you an ad about the Second Amendment, but it'll show a burglar breaking into your house or a house. That's something that appeals to you. Now, if you are you went to an NRA rally and you have high levels of uh, agreeableness, then you will have a Second Amendment ad but instead of showing a burglar, it'll show a, son, a father-son hunting together. See the difference? And one of those ads may appeal to one person and, and not the other, right? But they're able to do that because they have uh, these data points on you. I was talking to a friend this last week, a, a wife, the wife of my friend, who works in marketing. And she says there's people in her office who, using magazine subscriptions can determine your chance of diabetes with 95% accuracy. And I said, what are you talking about? Now, she may have been exaggerating a little bit. Maybe it's magazine subscriptions and a few other data points, and maybe it's not 95% accuracy, but it's 80% accuracy. Whatever it is, just a couple little things with great specificity can determine your chances of something totally random like diabetes. Ted Cruz's campaign is doing the same kind of thing. I think it's brilliant. And they'll even use the data to reach out to extroverts, right? So if you score high in extroversion, then they'll reach out to you and ask you if you want to take on leadership roles and and precinct leadership roles. It's amazing. And that's why I said before, Trump, Trump can say things that may appeal to a lot of people, but he can't say things that appeal to each person. Does that difference make sense? So I, I think I said before, Trump is a, is trying to bomb people into voting for him. And Ted Cruz is a sniper rifle, right? He's a sniper, different approach. And I think in a, in a culture that we're creating where it's all more personal, right? Um, You know, Uber, I want the car to come directly to me, (laughs) all this kind of stuff. Right. Um, with politics, it's more than ever, it's about, you know, he's talking to me. He's saying what I'm thinking. He believes what I believe. And I think with Ted Cruz's approach here, I think he appeals to that more even than Donald Trump can.
1: Hmm.
2: What do you think of that? one 888 93 and also on uh, Twitter, Slater Radio on Twitter. Uh, Let me back it up one quick second. So, and I say this to, uh, just to emphasize the importance of this. So Adam Carolla has a theory as to why Starbucks is so popular. How can Starbucks take something that costs 11 cents a cup and sell it for $4? And they're everywhere. <laughs> if, if you are at a hotel in a, in a different city, you walk out the front doors of the hotel and you look up and you say, where's the Starbucks? And you just expect for, for there to be one a block or two away, if not in the lobby of the hotel. Right? They're, they're, Starbucks is everywhere. How can that possibly? Why has Starbucks exploded? And why do people spend so much money on coffee that I'm told isn't even that good? I don't drink coffee, but I, most people I talk to don't even like Starbucks, but they're everywhere. Adam Carolla has a theory, and I think he's spot on. I think this is a major part of it. He says, whenever I'm trying to figure something out, I always bring it back to me, 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 me. Meaning neuroticism, or narcissism. Everything always points back to me. It's all about me. And he says, you know, when you go in, you don't say, I'll have a coffee. You say, I'll have a grande iced sugar-free vanilla latte with soy milk. And you say, I'll have a, a, a triple venti su- half-sweet, non-fat caramel mochiato. Right? It's very specific. It's very unique to me. It's the coffee I like the most. And then here's the best part. They write your name on the cup. Co- big, black, thick Sharpie, and they write your name in big letters. And then you wait, and then three minutes later they say, uh, Stephanie, Nancy, your grande iced sugar-free vanilla latte with soy milk is ready. And you walk up to the counter and you grab your super expensive, specially made, personalized coffee. Look, it's even got a name on the cup. And then you walk out feeling good about yourself. Feeling special. Because it was all about you. Now compare that to how we used to order coffee at, at the Shell station. And there's just a pot and you pour it in a cup and then you walk away. All right. Compare the difference in experience between those two things. Honestly, you go to the gas station, you pour the uh, coffee in a cup and you walk out. Versus. The, here's my super specific order, and I'll wait, and then uh, yes, yell out my name, please. Announce it to everyone what I'm ordering, right? It's a totally different experience, and it appeals to narcissists, which we are becoming more and more of. Also, compare the writing of your name, uh, that experience, and the yelling out of that um, to how you're treated at the deli counter. Number 48. Number 48 here. No, all right. Number 49. Do it 40. 40- what are we, cattle? At Starbucks, it's all about you. They yell out your name in front of everyone, and you have your own little special moment. That's Adam Kroll's theory, and I think there's something to that. And Cruz's campaign is applying that. If you subscribe to a Christian magazine, Cruz's campaign knows that and will appeal to exactly what you think is important. If you subscribe to a gun magazine, then they're going to talk to you about something maybe different than your Christian neighbor. I don't think it's deceitful necessarily. It's efficient compared to knocking on your door and saying, hey, please vote for Ted Cruz. He is A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, and K. They can knock on your door and say, hey, vote for Cruz. He believes in P. And that person says, that's what I believe most. in. That's the most important thing to me. I don't care about A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, and K. I care most about P or R or L or whatever, right? It's amazing. I think it's brilliant. I don't think this politic thing is much different from professional sports, right? Uh, The person who wins in sports... Is the person who works a little bit harder and a little bit smarter, right? It's the old cliche, but you got you got to get up at five a.m. because your competitor woke up at four thirty a.m. right because they're working a little bit harder and a little bit smarter. And I think of it. Uh, I had a really great honor of talking with Meb Kofleski. Meb Kofleski won the Boston Marathon um, the year after the Boston bombing. And he's here in San. He's from Eritrea uh, in Africa, uh, but now he lives here in San Diego. And we talked about his training regimen, and he goes up to Big Bear, which is the nearest mountain here in San Diego, and trains there all year at altitude. So the first person who trained at altitude was a little edge, a little bit of an edge. And that's all it took. That makes the difference. And I think Cruz's campaign is going to be a huge bump because of this uh, campaign strategy he has. So just to review, I think it's going to come down to the final three of Trump, Cruz, and Rubio. Trump has the media on his side. Just not not because the media likes him, but because he can play the media right <laughs> better than anyone ever. Um, so I mean, he gets all the media coverage is a better way. Like Hillary's got the media on her side, but Trump has all the media coverage. That's what I mean by it. Rubio's going to be the establishment guy. He's going to be a smooth talker, good looking guy. Uh, what's Cruz's benefit? Well, obviously, he's the most conservative of the three. Uh, just a traditional conservative. Uh, but the thing that's going to separate him is this. I don't wonder how much you're going to hear about it moving forward. Um probably not at all cuz we didn't hear about Barack Obama using it a lot in 2007, but I think it made all the difference. And I think it will here too. We'll see. It'll be fun. 188 933 93 and if you ever get a knock on the door from a cruise person, hear what they talk about, right? <laughs> I wonder how they approach you and, and if they're specific about it. Gone are the days of please vote for Donald Vera for, uh, for you know John Smith here. He's all these things to you. Those are gone. Ted Cruz's campaign is vote for Ted Cruz. He is this one specific thing to you that's most important to you. And I'm going to tell you about it in the one specific way that I think is most, um, that, that is most, uh, you'll be most receptive to. Gosh, it's smart. 1 888 93. Mike Slater, show the Blaze Radio Network. by the word.
3: Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network.
0: 888-900-3393. Mike Slater is on.
2: I found the numbers. The hotel towel experiment. Again, the sign that says "Please reuse your towels in the hotel." Uh, scientists uh, studied, and they said, "Ah, oh, the majority of guests in this hotel reuse their towels." And uh, just that sign, that little change in the words there, uh, increased towel reusage by twenty nine percent. Then they uh, changed the sign again, and it said uh, a majority of guests of this room have reused their towels. And that increased towel reusage by 41%. And even though there was absolutely zero personal connection between you and the person who used the room before you, and even though that's kind of gross to think about, that small increase in social pressure changed behavior that much more. And that's why president's campaign would say, did you know? That a majority of your neighbors have said they're going to vote for Barack Obama. Uh, Bert just said, Slater, people love to have you call them by their name in a genuine manner. It makes them feel special and important. Uh, Was it Carnegie who said, "Uh, there's nothing as sweet. There's there's no sound as sweet to someone's ears as the sound of their own name. It's true because we're all a little bit narcissist. Thanks, Bert. For that nice tweet there, Bert. Appreciate you. Send that over there, Bert. Hope you have a merry Christmas, Bert. Thanks for listening to the show, Bert. Uh, we did a, we did a lot today. Oh, the genuine parts there. Yeah, the genuine. Sorry. Um, did a lot today. Gosh, talked about uh, the greatest fighter pilot in American history, John Boyd. The principles. Not that he dis, uh, he didn't discover them. He defined them because the, reality, the principles already existed before him, but he just defined them, um, and how Donald Trump's campaign is using them. I don't know if Donald Trump's campaign is using them uh, knowingly. I don't think he sat down and said, well, what I must do is um, observe, orient, decide, and act, just like John Boyd. I'm not saying he did that, uh, but he's doing it, and he's doing better than anyone. He's establishing the reality that everyone else must react to. And I think out of all the you know, things we've said today, I think if he can keep that, going and if you can always stay in control of the narrative and the reality then um i think he'll win uh did that and kicked off the show talking about fossil fuels Uh, please um you know if you're looking for a book to read this week maybe you got the week after off or whatever got some time uh may i suggest the moral case for fossil fuels by alex upstein it is brilliant it is perfect it is uh, so important If you want to have a conversation with someone about global warming or climate change and you can completely change the terms, it's a lot like what I was talking about with John Boyd, like you establish the reality, get them to react to it. If the climate change people keep coming to you and saying, well, we can't do anything with energy, no fossil fuels because it hurts the environment, they're establishing the reality and you have to react to it. And that's not a debate you want to have because it's not based on logic. Uh, So if you can control the debate and learn how to do that, then... Everyone will get it, All right? If you establish the terms, then no one can disagree with you if you do it properly. And they teach you how, Alex teaches you how to do that in the moral case for fossil fuels. It's fantastic. Alex Epstein. Please check it out. of Crusaders, we're off the next uh, two Saturdays, which I hate. Um, but we'll be back, hopefully, hopefully in three weeks. Uh, I hope you have a wonderful Christmas with your family. Slater Radio on Twitter, Mike's uh, Mike Slater Show on Facebook, and we can hang out the rest of the week. Spread the word.
0: You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network.